Jennifer Ackerman Haywood here at the mic, and you're listening to episode 131 of the Craft Sanity Podcast. So far, I've put two shows together in close proximity. Not enough shows yet to call it a trend, but I think I'm starting to find my mojo again here as a podcaster. In just a bit, I'm going to play you an interview that I recorded recently with Adam Weiler. He's the founder and director of Ambrose, a screen printing and design company based in Holland, Michigan. Now, there are a lot of screen printing companies out there and a lot of design studios, but one of the things that sets Ambrose apart from all the others is that there's an education component. By day, Adam and his team design and print t-shirts for individuals and companies who, and organizations who want t-shirts printed, and then they have this whole other side to the business that is really not about making money. It's about helping young people find their way in the world using art as an outlet. So prepare to be inspired, folks. There's so much that you can take away from hearing Adam tell his story. So grab a project and settle in. Let's get to it. Well, Adam, thank you so much for being a guest on the Craft Sanity Podcast and a featured artist in my newspaper column as well. I appreciate your time today. It's my pleasure. Let's start by introducing the listeners to your business and what you do. Um, our, our business is a little unique in that it started as an after-school art and design program for high school students. Uh, it started in 2008. Uh, we approached the Arts Council here in town. And we said, hey, we've got this idea for an after-school arts program um, that exposes kids to creative career pathways, and we don't have any space. And we said, you guys don't have any, or you have space, but you don't have any high school programming. So there was an awesome partnership, and for four years, we met with students every Thursday with a goal of exposing them to kind of a core skill set that could be used for both self-expression, that they could see the application in self-expression and in industry. Uh, about, let's see here, a year into it, we did a workshop on kind of street art and stencil making. At the time, I was really into t-shirts. I still am into (laughs) t-shirts. And so, uh, silkscreen is kind of the industrial application of, uh, stencil making. Right. Um, And so, we made a t-shirt. I proposed this idea uh, I proposed the problem of alternative transportation, and it totally bombed and was a lesson in just because you care about something doesn't mean that kids care about it. <laughs> and so we opened it up and said, well, what do you guys care about? And uh, the issue of stress kind of came uh, to the surface. And so we made a T-shirt that said, pressure makes diamonds. And it had an illustration of an elephant standing on a diamond. Oh, okay. And so that was like our first T-shirt that we made. We sold it online. Um, we worked with a local, at that time I was kind of uh, loosely apprenticing at a silk screen shop here in town, and we said, hey, do you care if we come in and kind of rent your space second shift in order to raise money for the after school thing, this thing that we're doing, and they were really into it. The owners, uh, John and Jean, are just the most generous people that care about the community and have been totally supportive, and it's kind of grown from there. So now we have a little retail storefront um, in a workshop, a community workshop space where we host 
kind of uh, design charrettes for community groups, and we have a little production facility where we do uh, print work for ourselves and for clientele. When the kids are at school, are you then just doing jobs for you know people who are ordering shirts and so forth from like they would from a regular screen printing place? Yeah, from ten to five, we kind of uh, are all out production mode. So we've got a graphic designer and a printer on staff and are kind of like trying to grow that as much as possible. It, it was really interesting. Uh, in college, I was an art and mathematics guy and I looked at all the business kids like sellouts. And now <laughs> as I want to kind of make community change, I realized that all of those kids were actually like ahead of the game. And I was just really short sighted in my perspective. So, um, yeah, so we do business stuff during the day and then host after-school workshops for kids. And so it's been a six-year experiment. We've, we've failed a lot. We've tried a lot of things. Um, we have a core group of about, I would say, anywhere from 10 to 15 kids that show up weekly, and they're awesome. So they kind of become this little extended family cool. of Ambrosians. Yeah. <laughs> now, where did the name for the business come from? Ambrose is the patron saint of learning. Um, so there's a story. He was the Bishop of Milan, and there was this big conflict in between the Milanese people and their neighboring Goths. And uh, Goths had come over. They had kidnapped a couple of uh, Milanese uh, citizens, and Ambrose responded by taking his personal and the church held fortune of ornamental gold and melting it down into gold bricks to give as a ransom for these Milanese people. And uh, I think that uh, patron saints are, are really interesting. And this idea of leveraging kind of like creativity and commerce in an interesting way in order to kind of set kids on the right path was something that I really resonated with. So um, that's where the name comes from. Cool. Very good. It's a cool story behind it. I'm sure the kids like that, too. Yeah, I, some of them, I think, are more aware of it than others. Some just uh, <laughs> call it Ambrose, yeah. Just to back up a little bit, you studied a combination of math and art, which is kind of an yeah. un, it's slightly unusual. Usually people are art majors or math majors, not always both. But uh, where were you studying? Where were you at school? I, I grew up in rural Iowa, and my dad was a sportsman. He was a, a minor league baseball player for a while turned math teacher. And he was also uh, a really interesting, I say was, but he still is, like an interesting <laughs> like inventor, patent pursuer, uh, painter, um, kind of just a renaissance man. And so growing up, uh, I had the privilege of, of being able to go out with my dad and shoot hoops and play baseball and do long division and go and draw with him. And so I think just a love of of asking questions and pursuing answers and uh, being instilled with a confidence that you can figure it out if you uh, ask the right questions was a, was a real gift. Um, and I'm really grateful uh, for that time. So going into college, I originally was going to be an engineer. So I started off on that route, uh, took a drawing class and fell in love with it and um, uh, really enjoyed math all the while. And so by my junior year, I had equal credits in both. And so I was kind of like, well, you got to pick one. Um, so I actually majored in visual studies, I think is what it was called, uh, and minored in mathematics. And what school were you at? 
at Central College in Pella, Iowa. Um, it's a liberal arts school, um, similar to like, a, I'm trying to think regionally, there's a whole family of them, like a Trinity or Hope or Northwestern. Okay. In, in a similar vein to those institutions. Okay. So it's, so you, um, and then how did you find your way to the West Michigan area? Um, there is a camp uh, called Camp Geneva, which is located on the shores of Lake Michigan, just north of Holland. And it was there that I fell in love with the, a woman and the water. And <laughs> uh, Jenna Van Wagner was a counselor from the high school program in girls' cabins, and I was in the boys' cabins. And we were friends all throughout camp, but then we played a game of basketball against each other. And Jenna's from Detroit, and <laughs> her high school had like 6,000 people in it, 6,000 kids. And my whole hometown had 4,000 people in the, in the whole town of Winterset, Iowa. <laughs> and so um, I think she's better than me, but I think I just got lucky and beat her. Uh, but it was this, it was like this, this moment where the scales fell out of my eyes and all of a sudden I was enlightened as to all of Jenna's goodness and uh, fell head over heels in love with her. Um, right there on the court. Graduate. Yeah, on the court. I couldn't stop thinking about her then, you know, uh, which I was really glad that this happened at like the second to last week of camp because I would have been a crappy camp counselor uh, had it had it happened earlier. <laughs> you um, get a little too distracted, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, um, so then I, post-school, I moved to Michigan. Um, one of my best friends, we got a house together. Then Jenna moved to L.A., then Jenna moved back, and it finally worked out. So we've been together. Were you dating officially when she moved to L.A.? Or did you just... Yes, we oh, were. Okay. We were. Okay. That so... was, she had an internship opportunity um, with a service organization there, and so okay. she's working with uh, okay, Homeless so, in L.A. So she knew that you liked her. This wasn't something where you yeah. went back on a wing on a, well, a prayer. Right, right. An interesting story. There was another guy at camp who was who was by far physically superior to me, <laughs> um, and he had affection for her as well. Oh, and I wow. and I remember um, being unsure as to which way she would she would lean had, right. if we both would express our interest in her. And I strategically, on the last night of camp, we all kind of went out and had like a big party. And so I strategically packed my car with my belongings so I could only ask one other person along. So that way, <laughs> nobody else. We just have some quality time together. Uh, so I asked her to go with me. And on the way home, I asked her, hey, you know, so if you had three wishes in all of this world, like, and they could be granted, what would they be? And the first wish was that she wouldn't have to worry about money. The second wish was that uh, she could just kind of do what she wanted to do, that she would pursue her, like, interests. And I think those two are related. And the third, she said, and I wish you didn't have to go back to Iowa. And, and at this point, I was like, what? I was like, you, you reciprocate these feelings? I, yeah, and so anyways, that was, that was awesome. That's a movie right there, that scene. Right. <laughs> so the next morning, I was had packed my car, said goodbye to her, was going back to Iowa, and then kind of like turned around, stopped in her cabin, uh, gave her a hug, kissed her on the cheek, and then told her that I would call her tomorrow. So long-distance romance for a year. 
I was in Chicago for a little bit and then moved here. And it's, uh, yeah, it wasn't all clear skies, though. We had our rocky moments as well. Yeah, I think everybody, every relationship goes through weather, has to weather some storms. But uh, it all ended, you have a happy ending here in that you you land in, in the same city um, and you're by Lake Michigan. Um, <laughs> what more could you ask for, right? Right, right. Well, I think we could ask for not 140 inches of snow during the winter. Well, That's yeah, so you know, I'm trying to block that out still. Have you recovered mentally from that? You know, we still struggle with it. I think there's always the lure of warmer weather. And my wife, uh, Jenna, is now um, is really interested in sustainable agriculture. And so having such a short season um, to grow and be outside is is really kind of, it, it, I think it's hard on us. So there's still the lure of the South, but there's a great community here acknowledging that life is more than just professional pursuits. And I don't think that we would choose to go elsewhere. So yeah. for here, for now, we're here, we're committed, and we're going to give it all we got while we're here. All right. Well, that's awesome. And so we can put some kind of time frame on things for people. You graduated from college. What year was that when you graduated from school? That was in 2004. Okay. And so post-school, I was a, a youth director on the north side of town for five years. And then during the fifth year of that, it was when we started Ambrose in 2008. West Michigan has been a good place for you to be creative and also do work that has an impact on the community. It sounds like that's something that is really important to you. It's been a really wonderful place to kind of experiment. And I think that through the grace of others and my own probably stubbornness, it's, a, it's been a good <laughs> pairing. And, uh, and we'll see. I mean, we're still, we're only six years old. And the ramifications of the project are, I think we're starting to see them and I think that they're good, but who knows, you know, who's to tell. Well, and you work with mostly teenagers. Yeah. So our project started, let's see, with six kids and then it really quickly ballooned to like 25. Um, at the time, it was just my wife and I volunteering every Thursday and it was unmanageable and we're like oh my gosh we need to start putting some kind of like structure to that and so we started recruiting volunteers to kind of help and hang out and just walk alongside kids as they were kind of discovering their creative voice and pursuing um, professional and or just uh, amateur pursuits and uh, so the kids that thrived on the on the chaos didn't stick around but it narrowed down to this group of about you know 10 or 12 kids and it's been a, a that number has always been consistent, um, but it's been kind of like the actual content of the 10 or 12 has kind of fluxed as kids have graduated and new kids have come along. Okay. And so have you, do you stay in contact with the kids that have kind of graduated from your program? Yeah, it's, I think that the most, some of the most exciting things have been to see kids who have, who have been through the program now, um, hang out and we can collaborate and make things together. Um, one of our students is now a, a designer at Neff, which was kind of like is a streetwear brand. Yeah, that's California. really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Not every kid that goes through it, it uncovers this deep affection for the art. I think they all have appreciation for it. <laughs> right. But others choose to pursue other professional options. Yeah, so we've had a that's couple cool go on too. To, yeah. uh, to medical careers. Um I think one of my one of my favorite stories is when we were first getting started, we did a seventh grade camp 
and we brought in, it was a summer camp, we brought in poets and a painter and a bookbinder and a photographer, and then I taught like Photoshop and drawing with the goal that kids would make a magazine based on things that they found interesting. And one of our students, her name was Kathy, made this incredible spread about factory farming. And at the time, I was so oblivious to this that it was just like this shocking wake-up moment where you have this 80-pound middle school girl <laughs> rock your world conceptually right. and open up to this world of like things that are going around you that you're totally oblivious to. Right. Um, and so she is now going to the University of Michigan and pursuing... Uh, I forget what the actual, uh, she's studying like brain cancer in rats. And so, oh my gosh, um, wow. it's been, I can't, I can't claim any credit for that. She's just an amazing student. She's, yeah, are, she's a, a brain yeah. uh, surgeon now and you know, it's all because of you. In trade, yeah. <laughs> Part of the reason why we do the after school thing is I think there's a saying that some of your biggest passions stem from your biggest pains and so for me, going to school in a, in a little bit of a rural area, having this love for uh, both conceptual, abstract, and grounded, kind of pragmatic, numerical problem solving, nowhere along the line did somebody say, hey, you should be an industrial designer or you should be a graphic designer. And it wasn't until my senior year of college where I really started to understand what the graphic design field was, that it existed, that there were training opportunities that would have been available to me. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, you know, you've already committed X amount of dollars towards college. Oh, yeah. And, and it's like, time. do you start over? Yeah, all that time. Do you start over and do this kind of thing? Having experienced the sting of that obliviousness to, I think, the depth of the creative fields has made me want to expose students to just what is out there. And that map is always changing, I guess. Who knows what there's, what kind of jobs there will be in 20 years. But, right. yeah, trying to produce at least a little bit of a more contemporary map for what the post-collegiate landscape looks like so they can go and better informed to their college pursuits uh, is, a big, is a big goal of ours. Well, it sounds like a wonderful service that you're providing to the, the, the kids who come through the doors because I think that is a big, a big issue where students are making the, big invest, the, mo the biggest investment they've ever made in their life when they get to, the, get to college. They're putting a lot of money down and they're spending a lot of time and to you get to talk to other artists or even if it's not, even if they don't want to go into art, I think just having a creative outlet uh, I, I often tell people that, you know, your hobby can be a lifesaver. You know, if you have something creative mm. that you do on the on the side, you know, you can go to a stressful day, whether you're a brain surgeon, an attorney, you know, a teacher, or, you know, you work um, in some other profession. You know, you might not be doing art for a living, but art can save you. Uh, I don't know if that's ever something that you've thought about, you know, what this does just emotionally for your the kids who come in. Yeah, there's... Um... One pivotal moment that happened during my college program was uh, we did a workshop with this man from New York. His name was Tim Rollins. And back in the, I want to say, 80s, 90s, um, he was a teacher in New York working with at-risk kids and um, didn't have a budget to, per to like acquire uh, curriculum materials. And so what he did was he would go and purchase books 
and record himself reading um, reading Martin Luther King's speeches or reading uh, the Temptation of St. Anthony. Uh, and they, he would play those uh, audio recordings after school, um, and students would do drawings. And through that sort of alternative engagement with the material, they were able to like learn this new language, a new way of kind of exploring these issues that were going around them. And seeing the way that that artist chose to engage, not just from a, an aesthetic perspective, right. but uh, a life work uh, perspective, I think was, there's a, a new form called art and social practice, which is this emerging kind of performance, documentation, public engagement um, kind of art form. And I think that art and life overlaps so much that it's nice to see the sort of vocabulary around the sort of life performance mm -hmm. as art um, emerge. So, uh, yeah, it, there's there's been so many people along this path that have, I think, been barking um, up the same tree, uh, that there's just so much interesting material to call from regarding uh, social engagements, emotional engagements, racial and sexual engagements, and just trying to figure out how do you help how do you help kids talk about that stuff? Are you to a point now where this is sustainable and this is something that you you feel like you're you kind of got it? It's up and running now, and it's not you know so many hours that you're just not being compensated for. For people who are out there, maybe in that volunteer mode, uh, they might want to hear what you have to say about how do you translate that into oh, a gosh, business? Oh gosh, yeah. It's still fueled a lot by altruism. And honestly, my wife, Jenna, is a brilliant businesswoman. I reference her as like wisdom incarnate. She's just like so wise. And so for the longest time, what we were trying to figure out is like, how do we free each other up to like really bring our strengths to the table? And so she took over the majority of the finances and really helped steer it in a positive direction and would kind of like rein in the, the head in the clouds so that it, it touched the feet on the ground um, <laughs> and, helped, uh, and helped, I think, create a really good path forward for it. Are we making massive amounts of money? <laughs> like, no, I think we're still kind of like struggling and trying to figure out that sort of like multiple hustle there still in lies this tension as far as the most tangible business model that we have is this sort of like service-based screen printing. Folks come in, we make family reunion t-shirts, we make team t-shirts, we make uh, camp t-shirts and business t-shirts, and we try to do those as creatively as possible. And then, uh, so that's, that's kind of like one leg of our three-legged stool. Uh, leg two is design charrettes or group workshops where folks can come in as a team and we kind of work through a design-related issue, whether it be aesthetic or institutional, kind of like trying to figure out um, where different gaps are inside of uh, their institutions. And then step three, or like the third tier, um, I would say is, so there's the design workshops, I'm sorry, there's printing there's workshops, and then there's design work. So um, folks can hire us to do branding. Um, so we've done kind of corporate workshops. We recently helped develop a new kind of like logo and brand language for Holland, um, which is kind of in the process of being implemented cool. uh, through web and print mediums. So trying to grow the, the, 
kind of corporate design service, the corporate print service, the corporate workshop service, all of those which we do, each one of those things has like a corporate side Mm -hmm. and has a communal educational side. So we do um, a thing called print together time the first Friday of every month. So parents and kids can bring in a Sharpie drawing. Kids go through the whole process of making a film positive, exposing it, picking out their T-shirt and in color, and then printing it themselves. So um, it's a process that we take uh, adults through in corporate workshops, and we take kids through in sort of these, like, communal settings. And it's really, I think, kind of like trying to figure out how do you use – and maybe that's, like, the big human question is how do you use the stuff that you have both for good Mm -hmm. and for – like the sort of like life sustenance, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and so how much does that cost when a family comes in and they bring the, the kid's Sharpie drawing? How much does that cost for the kid to get to print a T-shirt? That costs $40 for two T-shirts. Okay, and that's pretty cool because to go through that whole process. Is that popular? Do people seem to really like to come in for that opportunity? Yeah, it's been, I feel like when we first started it, it was it was overwhelming. Um, there was a great response. It's been a learning curve for us trying to figure out how do you streamline, you know, right. anywhere from 15 to 30 families coming through oh, wow. on a Friday night. Wow. And so, yeah, it's been awesome. The face of kids when they pull the squeegee and when they lift up the screen and can see this thing that they made is just, I think that like I get butterflies in my stomach every time. Because realizing that you can make something and it can make a difference and you don't just have to consume your identity by picking your shirt off a shelf in some store is a really powerful experience. And in some ways, I feel like I'm trying to help middle school and elementary and high school Adam kind of like self-actualize and realize that, <laughs> hey, man, cool cool is what you make it. And it's okay to be weird and to pursue those those things that that not everybody else might be interested in so no i totally get that and so for the after school programs are they all fee-based do people pay for everything that you're doing or are some of them free to students who might not have the means yeah okay so our after school program that happens every thursday historically has been totally free so we pay for everything involved volunteers help out on that we try to keep the costs non-existent so that Mm -hmm. students who don't have resource can can participate. One of the challenges with that has been, I think when you give, what is that quote? Like why buy a cow when you get the milk for free or something like that is, is making sure. I think that the, the work that we're doing is incredibly valuable. We're bringing in entrepreneurs and designers who are are like literally changing the face of our region. And I feel like that's that's valuable for their time and also for our time to kind of like curate that. Absolutely. At the same time, it needs to be accessible and not just maintain a like be a sort of like privileged club where kids who, who've been privileged and who already might have access to those things get more access and kids that don't have access get less. Right. What we're trying to figure out this upcoming year is how do you structure it so that it captures that value, whether it be through um, through sponsorships or through an application kind of fee or a membership fee. We, we don't know. 
and we're experimenting with that, I guess. The bigger you get, the more well, your reputation gets out there. Probably more people want to be involved in what you're doing. Is that? It's been a growing edge for us and trying to figure out we got into this because we loved creativity, because we loved kids, because we wanted to see kids have those type of, I think, transformative experiences with their own voice, um, those sort of empowering things. And you don't often think about doing paperwork when, you know, no, emotionally no, when no. you think about that. And so, like, technically, we're structured as an LLC. And so any all the sort of, like, philanthropy that happens – um, just kind of comes out of our, out of our budget, you know? Okay, right. Um, and so trying to figure out, is there a way to partner with nonprofits to make, or, or to start a separate wing of it that just goes after granting to do the after school stuff really well. Mm-hmm. And then does the screen printing because it's become an employment program Are we best suited to do that in house or is it best to kind of like look to team up with somebody, uh, where there's a definite alignment of mission and vision for sort of teen empowerment. So we're trying to figure that out. I know you have a lot of programs planned for the summer. So you have some things that our students can look forward to here in West Michigan. So what, what do you have planned for the summer? We're kicking things off with the cardboard regatta, which is an early summer thing. A cardboard regatta is essentially building a cardboard boat, a boat out of nothing but cardboard and duct tape. And so a local company, Shoreline Container, has been super generous and excited and donated a ton of cardboard. So teams sign up. You get a build team of 10. You get three hours to build your boat. And then uh, two people actually have to uh, – a local company called Coast 3 is donating some uh, some oars. And two contestants will actually paddle their boat uh, through a course. And there are awards uh, dished out for – um, the fastest time through the course and should no team actually make it through the course, then it'll be the, the longest, uh, the longest traversing boat. And then there's a best looking boat. It's like steam, right? It's science, a little bit of tech. There's some displacement work in there. There's some aerodynamics and it's all that mixed with a little bit of art flair. So we'll see what happens with that. I was imagining in my head like you were making tiny boats and going to float them across a pond or something. But these are actually people are getting in these boats. Or at least attempting Attempting to get in. in. So I'm assuming that you want people to know how to swim just in case. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, There will be uh, Camp Geneva is donating some life vests. So good that call. will be okay. Very uh, good the call. area that we're going to be in is not is not that deep. Okay. Um, so I think that will be <laughs> will be all right. So there aren't any whitewater rapids or anything you have to traverse. No, so. no. Yeah, well, that sounds awesome. So I think that there's probably an equal amount of risk in using a box cutter to cut cardboard. So, That's probably um, actually the most dangerous part of this project, honestly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we've got some li- we've got liability forms out there. And we're going to go through like a cardboard cutting 101 before anybody actually right. And cuts, these are these are older some cardboard. These are older kids. You know, the, the, you're not older kids. Yeah, yeah, you're not working with kindergartners and box cutters. No, yes. no. Okay. <laughs> um, and, but have you? Did you read the most recent Atlantic? There was something about overprotective parenting and allowing kids to kind of like mitigate risks themselves. <laughs> I did not see this article yet. I'm going to have to go okay. look it up. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know as a reporter, I've I've written about helicopter parents who hover around their their college 
aged kids. So, um, so yeah, so this was, a, I hope this, this article wasn't suggesting that kindergartners use box cutters though. Um. <laughs> no, um, it was, it was talking about these places in Europe. I think they're called, I can't remember what the name of them is, but they're essentially just wild spaces that kind of look like trash heaps where there, <laughs> there might be barrels oh or wood or old wheels. Yeah. And and essentially, it's just unstructured, unsupervised playtime for kids. With potentially um, dangerous materials. <laughs> well, you know, I don't take my word for it. Check out the Atlantic article. Yeah, I will. Uh, but it talks about allowing, allowing kids to kind of like mitigate those risks. Mm-hmm. And there were like five fundamental risks involved. I think there was something about, about things being sharp, things being fast, things being high. Uh, things being dangerous. Um, it was really interesting. And so I think the premise was if we prevent students from making those decisions early, we don't build critical thinkers. We build really good rule followers. Well, there's a lot of truth to that. I think that I can get behind yeah. that philosophy. Yeah. And even now, like with our students, as we, so currently up in our space, we have, uh, we have kind of a gallery wall mm-hmm. and we don't kind of have a gallery. We have a gallery wall. And uh, there's a show up by a group of local teenagers. Um, they go to a school called Black River. Part of Black River, um, they have this thing called the project term, which is uh, where they take a couple weeks at the end of their second semester, and they just focus really intensely for two weeks on a project. And so um, all morning and or all afternoon and or all day, depending on what they sign up for, they just dive deep into uh, exploring that area. So we had a group of students come in, uh, for a week and we did, uh, 15, anywhere from one to three color posters with them based on, um, there's a really great art teacher named uh, Peter Middleton here in town. And, uh, and it was this artwork based on the teen perspective, uh, the teen, uh, the teen kind of idea of identity and influence and agency. Um, and so, even inside of that, there was this sort of like, I want, you want to be able to let go, to let them make the decisions that they mm-hmm. want to make and be, and deal with the repercussions of potential failure. But then you also desperately don't want them to fail. And right. so there's always that tension. You never like to see the people that you love hurt. Did you have a mentor in your life that showed you the right sounds of your dad? You learned from watching what he was doing. Did you have anybody in college that kind of, influenced you or there was a group of kind of like uh of gentlemen we had this club and we would get together and we would talk about kind of contemporary masculinity and identity and struggles inside of that and how do we be how do we true to ourselves and true to our convictions and true to each other um and so having those sort of pivotal experiences you realize um well, can I go on a brief tangent? You Absolutely. Said, you said I, I, I am the tangent queen, so by all means, okay. be my guest. So there, one of my favorite authors is a, is a gentleman. Uh, he's a British economist named E.F. Schumacher, and he wrote a book called Small is Beautiful, and the subtext, the subtitle of that is Economics as if People Mattered. Inside of that book, he talks about, now you have to forgive me because I can't, I, I don't know this off the top of my head. He, what he called the Mutual Admiration Society. And there was something like, um, at the time, for every person that graduated from college in China, 
there was something like a hundred plus years of agrarian labor that allowed them to reach that sort of like the pinnacle of academia to graduate and to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he said, the biggest threat of that is that they would graduate to this realm of mutual admiration of the society uh, full of nothing but mutual admiration and that they wouldn't realize the sort of the labor that was injected that helped get them there. Mm-hmm. And the importance of, of not just living in that mutual admiration society, uh, but of thinking critically about the investment that it took to get them there and in kind of like turning and allowing others to kind of like pursue similar paths. Um, and so that idea of, man, there are so many people who have given their lives, their time, their talent, their energy. Just this morning, a random 15-minute sit-down with a mentor uh, that you that are invaluable, that not everybody has. And so trying to figure out how do you how do you give give yourself away in a similar way, I think helps you find yourself in a way. You know? Oh, yeah, I I I definitely feel that's true. How has working with some of these young people helped you find yourself? Whew. Um, honestly, I still, uh, I think in dealing with teen issues with identity and agency and impact, and I still feel like a teenager sometimes. I don't actually feel like that. But there are moments where that sort of angst of, of meaning, of meaninglessness, of efficacy, of talent, or lack thereof, um, it, it, it plagues you sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I think being able to reach out and connect with others who are going through something different, but maybe in a similar sort of way, enables you to feel solidarity in this sort of aging process. Mm-hmm. It allows you to kind of make peace with your past and being connected with folks who are older allows you to make peace with your future and come to a sort of like come to terms a little bit with, with mortality, with meaning, with the role that, that money or relationship or security plays in that. During this conversation with the high school students from Black River, one of the things that we talked about is a sort of like, well, what is society? You know, uh, society, we like to kind of externalize it and, and say that it's that pop culture isn't us, but at the same time, we contribute to pop culture. And so if, if the only culture that exists is the culture that we make, how do we make a culture that we actually believe in, a culture that's, that's healthy? E.F. Schumacher's big three where that's healthy, that's beautiful, and that's permanent. Mm-hmm. And so trying to think that the only way culture will ever change is if people who believe that there are alternative ways to do that pay the price and kind of experiment with it, you know, and see to see what's possible. If there are things that are actually healthy, beautiful, and permanent, and if we can if we can shift the dial a little bit, if we can move the needle even just a little bit, I think that that's I think that that's a worthwhile life. I can imagine that the students that take your workshops and, and just meet after school. And you said right now you're to a, a group of about how many meet weekly? We've got a, a little group of 10 to 12. Do they still meet in the summer? Are they still there? 
in the summertime? Yeah, so this summer, this Thursday, we're getting together. Um, there's actually an internet school for cardboard boat building. So we're going to watch that and talk about strategy for a <laughs> boat building project. Um, and then we are going to go, we've got a thing called, it's called Art Camp, um, which is a three-day backpacking trip that happens at the end of June. So we're backpacking in Nordhaus Dunes, and we've got some artists going along with us that will be making a film and doing paintings and drawings uh, and installations and photographs that we'll have a show at Ambrose hopefully next month based on the work that happens there. Um, then we've got screen printing camp and uh, and drawing camp that happened this summer. So those are kind of week-long intensives. Um, but in the gaps, what we're trying to do this summer is really give students permission to pursue things. And so we came up with a list of things like make a podcast, make a music video, raise money for charity through some sort of musical venture. And so we're trying to figure out, we're, we're allowing the students the space to figure out how exactly they want to leverage the space and the name, what they want to pursue, how they want to pursue it, and who knows how that'll go, you know? Oh, that's very uh, exciting. So they'll kind of determine they'll kind of determine what it is that they do, how they do it, and then we'll help them get there. I don't know. I mean, do you sleep much or do you have the wheels turning all the time? No. <laughs> no. It, it was it's terrible. Like last night I went to bed at one and then I woke up at six because I was thinking about all the invoices that I need to get shut out. <laughs> oh, um no. Yeah. Well, I think it's really fantastic that you, um, I'm glad you went to camp and met Jenna because. Oh, I do. <laughs> what a transformative yeah, experience. What, I mean, and it's like a movie scene. So you're going to have to write that full, that whole thing out now. And just so people know too, uh, Jenna very recently, she, you know, she was a huge part of, you know, what you were doing. Uh, and then she now is, you're supporting her pursuing one of her dreams. We got involved with a CSA, a community-sported agriculture farm called Groundswell. Maybe four years ago, we kind of purchased a share. And Jenna, during this time, has been really interested in health and nutrition, healthy local food systems, and was reading a ton, got involved. We ate more rutabaga than I've ever eaten <laughs> prior to that, which was none. <laughs> And um, and then they offer this thing called a working share where you can actually go out and kind of like work for part of your shares. Uh, so your share, I think, gets cut in half if you work X amount of hours per week uh, to volunteer at the farm. So she did that and kept falling more in love with the farm and the people and Tom and Katie, the owners, and some of the other staff there have become her best friends. And so this summer, she just transitioned actually last Friday um, and so now she's kind of working there, helping out with their Holland and Grand Rapids distribution and uh, pulling a lot of weeds and making sure that those organic veggies get grown proper, that they get the TLC <laughs> they deserve. Which is great, which is really cool. So it sounds like people will still see her around Ambrose. Does she go on the camping trips or how does that work? Yeah, she, we're trying to figure out the summer schedule and she's going to be around. She has some ideas. Her big mission is to kind of make local food more accessible and design educational experiences around that. So she's going to be doing a project this summer called the Salad Club, which is kind of a curated six-week experiment in local seasonal lunches. 
So she has her own kind of entrepreneurial itches that she's scratching. And it's really fun to see her kind of come alive and pursue, I think, the way that she thinks the world can be more healthy, beautiful, and permanent in her own kind of special way. So, well, it and, not, like- and not just her own special way, but it's just like a really healthy, good way to move <laughs> forward. <laughs> Yeah, she's um these are there's actually some research to back her methods of what she's trying to do. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, it's it's eat more salad, <laughs> you will be healthy. I can accept that. Right. She doesn't have to show me any research there. Well, I don't know if you have any other thoughts of you know, things that I didn't ask you about, anything that you want the folks at home to know about. Maybe it's this. So we have this mantra and that is um nothing fancy, everything beautiful. Attempting to pursue a life that's that although it might be void of glitz, that it's rich in substance. We love sharing that journey and living honestly with our friends and with our neighbors and with people that we don't know. And we would just encourage people to like start asking those questions and living honestly. And if they think the world can be different, pursue it. And that's a good thing. I've got a blog, or it's a semi-blog. It's an archive of my journals that has kind of like led up to this point, and that's at hellomynameisadam.com. So you can kind of track the evolution of Ambrose in journal form there and uh, life lived with your with a loved one. Well, that's really – are you on Twitter or Facebook or any oh, other yeah. places? Yep, on Twitter, uh, you can follow Ambrose at Ambrose Makery. Okay. And then on Facebook, we're at Ambrose Collective. Okay. What about uh, Instagram? Are you guys on Instagram? Instagram, we're at Ambrose Makery as well. Okay. Awesome. And I'll post links. So if people don't, I can't remember all that, they're walking their dog or out for a jog, uh, don't scramble for a piece of paper. I'll put those links on the website. I wish you all the best. I think you've started something really fantastic. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. And um, let me know if there's something I can do to, to help you out because I think uh, this sounds like a really cool thing to be a part of. So uh, congrats to you. Thank you. And it's good to connect with other people who are trying to, I think, just keep their kids creative, man. It's cool what you, the work that you do. See, I told you that was going to be pretty inspiring. Special thanks to Adam for agreeing to do the interview on pretty short notice. I have been flying by the seat of my pants lately, and it's always nice to have people who are willing to ride along. I hope you folks at home were able to kind of glean some inspiration from the conversation. I know it's kind of led me to think, geez, What else could I do to contribute to the education of the next generation? I think that a world with more art and people who know how to express themselves in a peaceful and powerful way, uh, the better off we're going to be. Thanks for tuning into the show and listening to episode 131. I've already recorded another show that will be forthcoming in about a week. That will be uh, timed with an article that I have coming up in the paper. I uh, wrote a column for the Grand Rapids Press and MLive.com about Adam as well. So that will be online June twenty second, 2014. And you can find all the links to Adam's business and the Facebook and all that. You can find that at craftsanity.com. His main website is ambrose.com. I-S, so that's going to be A-M-B-R-O-S-E dot I-S. And you can follow him on Facebook.com backslash Ambrose Collective. And he's Ambrose Makery on Twitter and Instagram. So that's where you can find him. You don't have to memorize that. If you're out walking your dog or running around your neighborhood, just go to craftsanity.com and I will have those links 
displayed for you. If you have a suggestion of who you'd like to hear from on an upcoming episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast, by all means, send me an email, jennifer at craftsanity.com, and I will uh, add your suggestions to my very long list of people who I would love to talk to. So thanks for tuning in. I will be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me.